So on Thursday, I was working from home, and I'm sitting in, in, in the basement where my office is, and I did what I haven't done for quite a while. I, I put a TV on, and I had Fox News on all day long, because I wanted to hear about this airplane crash, this horrific crash, and it was really on Thursday that all the horrible details started coming out uh, about this event. And as I was watching and working and watching and listening to the news all day long, I did something that I'm quite known to do if you've ever sat at a meeting with me and I got a pen and paper. I doodle. And at the top of the sheet of paper, I wrote down a question, not thinking about the fact, or not consciously thinking about the fact I was writing down the question, but I looked down on the paper and I wrote down after they shared the details of the co-pilot and all the horrible things there. And then they talked about all the fighting that was going on in the Middle East. Uh, And then at 3.15, there was the explosion, what they were reporting as a building collapse. And then that massive fire where a whole bunch of people were injured in New York City. And it's right on the screen. I'm watching that. And I wrote down the question, could today get any worse? And I looked down at the question a little bit later. and went, wow. That's what was going through my mind. Could today get any worse? And I thought of the fact that it was two weeks ago that I was asking myself the very same question. I got a phone call from my brother that my cousin had suddenly passed away. uh, And uh, it was just in his 50s. And the funeral was going to be in Aurelia. I didn't know the details. Uh, but he would call me when he, once he heard them. Well, I got on the computer, went to the only funeral home that I know of in Aurelia. And I'm looking for his name on the list. I couldn't find it. But at the very top of the list of incoming, uh, coming up funerals was this name, Vicey Barnes. I'm going, well, that's my dad's oldest sister. That's my Aunt Vicey. How many Vicey Barnes can there be in Aurelia? Well, sure enough, it was my aunt's death announcement. And her funeral was going to be in Aurelia. And I said to myself, could today get any worse? And usually these things sometimes happen in threes. I'm going, oh no, like that's two. Could today get any worse? And then I thought, I've asked that question before. And not just could today's get any worse. Can this week get any worse? But I've asked, can my life get any worse? And I think back to when my brother-in-law was killed in a motorcycle accident. And we discovered that my mom was suffering from dementia. And then my dad had a heart attack and he died a few months later. And then my mom's uh, health got to the point where we had to put her uh, in a nursing home. And I can remember many times asking, can things get any worse? Can anything else happen to make things worse? And just having conversations with several of you this past week, I realize that some of you are asking that same question. Can today, can this week, can this month, can this year, can my life get any worse? You're dealing with discouragement, struggles, personal world collapses all around you. And it reminded me how fragile, how uncertain, how unsure the things of this world really are. Even those things that we were certain would never fail us. Friendships, employment, uh, relationships, marriages, infrastructure, health. Just reminds me that we can get up one morning and be feeling great. 
and go to bed that night having just one thing happen, just received one phone call. And you hit the pillow asking yourself that question. Could this day have gotten any worse? Can my life get any worse? We live in a fragile world. So much of the things that are around us are uncertain uh, and unsure. And when we realize these things, it causes us to lose happiness. It robs us of our peace. It robs us of our confidence. And it makes us very suspicious when anyone else comes along and makes a promise or gives us a guarantee that this cannot fail. Now, I think the disciples of Jesus could relate. It was just hours before the death of Jesus. And they must have been asking themselves that very question. Could today get any worse? They've just left everything to follow Jesus. They had put all their hope that Jesus would be the one that would make things right for them here on earth, who would deal with the Roman oppression, who, who would set up his kingdom on earth, and yet everything that Jesus been, has been saying lately doesn't sync with those expectations. Jesus is talking about suffering and, and dying and, and needing to leave and, and that, that they can't go with him and that they, he has to go back to his father. Could today get any worse? And yet as Jesus is, is leading his disciples through the narrow streets of Jerusalem heading towards uh, the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to them and says something that stops them in their tracks and that should stop us in our tracks as well. He turns to them and says, no one will take your joy from you. You see, another lesson from the Upper Room Discourse, which is a, a series that we've been following for the last five or six weeks, another lesson is that followers of Jesus can live in the fullness of joy. But how can Jesus make such a claim? Especially when we know even those things that are around us of this world in our life that are so sure, that seem so um, steady, can collapse around us. How could Jesus have such confidence guaranteeing his followers that no one will take your joy from you? On what basis can Jesus make such a claim? Well, the answer is in our text for this morning. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at chapter 16 beginning at verse 16. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got pew Bibles. If there's not a pew Bible in front of you, someone from a, you know, stick up your hand and someone will grab one for you that's uh, in their pew. And if you're looking in the pew Bible and you can share the page number, that would be really helpful for John 16. 751, John chapter 16. I think before we, we start looking at the text, one thing that's important to do is define joy. I think we all have our own concept, our understanding of joy. And I think a pretty common definition of joy uh, would be that joy is synonymous with happiness. Uh, and as we know, happiness is the result of happenings. 
And so for many people, experiencing joy means that we are experiencing good circumstances. Our uh, accomplishments, our accumulations, our popularity, our appearance, our health, our circumstances leave us happy. Therefore, we are experiencing joy. Often, the idea is that if you are joyful, it means you are happy, that you are feeling good. And if you're experiencing a fullness of joy, you couldn't have more happiness. And uh, for those of you who know who Pharrell Williams is, read the lyrics of his song, Happy. Because that is what he is saying. That you can be happy. And yet I would suggest to you that happiness, circumstances can collapse in an instance. Only takes a phone call to have those feelings of happiness. Stability, those things that you feel are sure to collapse around you. And so if that's not the definition that the Bible would suggest is what joy means, what is the definition of joy? And Rick Warren, uh, his wife Kay Warren, has written a book, Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough. Uh, And she has put together, from her study of Scripture, a definition of joy that I think is really helpful for us this morning. And uh, if you can put it on there, Sally. So joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Joy is a settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. And so if this is the definition, if this is what joy is, how is it that Jesus could make such a claim that no one will ever take this joy from you? What's the foundation? On what basis is Jesus able to make that claim? Now let's turn to our text and see if we can find the answer. And starting at verse 16, we are going to see a first century version of peekaboo. It may be the first time in history that peekaboo has ever uh, been mentioned. Now you see me, now you don't. Listen to the words of Jesus. In verse 16, he says, it says, Jesus went on to say, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. What is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is, in a little while, in fact, in a matter of a few hours, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be put to death on a cross. You won't see me anymore. But in a little while, in the matter of a few days, you will see me again. Because I will rise from the dead. Now I want you to understand something. I want you to not miss the mindset of Jesus. He is hours away from an, a, the most horrific event that's ever been recorded in history. He has every reason, as we've mentioned many times during this series, to be totally preoccupied with the, with the beating and being nailed to a cross, the bearing all of our sin upon himself, the separation from his Father. And yet, where is this concerned? 
His disciples are confused. His disciples are feeling sorrow. His disciples are anxious. They don't understand what's going on. And so Jesus takes his mind off of himself. And he puts his mind on his disciples. And, and in these verses, Jesus could have laid a theological heavy on them. Uh, he could, if, in, in the reading that we did for, about Palm Sunday, it said that his disciples didn't understand until Jesus was glorified all that was going on and, and all that was being said and, and all that would be done. But he could have just tried to lay a heavy on them. Or he could have just waited. Waited for three days uh, after he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and the Spirit is sent down and the Spirit would help his disciples to understand all that had been said and all that had been done. But no, Jesus takes the time to look beyond what faced him. To look beyond to the joy that was set before him. All that would be accomplished by what he would do on the cross. And he points to the joy that would be the disciples. But as you could expect, the disciples, they're confused. They don't really understand what Jesus is talking about still. And in verse 17, it says, At this time, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and then after, sorry, and then, Sorry, I'm reading the same line three times here. What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. So the disciples are talking amongst each other. They're probably following Jesus. And, and the sense of, of, of the, the Greek here is that this is a constant conversation. They're, they're muttering and bantering back and forth. What does Jesus mean? What did he mean in a little while? What does he mean in a while we're not going to see him, but in a while we're going to see him? And, and he said earlier that he's going to the Father. What does he mean? We don't understand. We don't get it. And, and for us, it's easy to, to judge the disciples. Like, what, like, why don't you get it? It was pretty easy for Brent to explain it. He's talking about his death and resurrection. But, but we got the, the benefit of 2020 vision looking backwards. The disciples had their concept of what the Messiah was going to be like. And there was no category in that concept for a Messiah who was going to die, rise again, and then leave and send another counselor. The disciples were looking for a Messiah who was going to rule and reign, not die and depart. Why would the Messiah feel that he had to leave them? And so the disciples are confused, but they're more than confused. They're perplexed. Their world is collapsing right around them. They were asking that question. Could this day, could our life get any worse? They could never embrace that definition of joy. Because they did not understand the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the same holds true for us. And please hear me on this. Thinking of this definition of joy. If we fail to grasp and own the implications 
of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We will not be able to embrace joy, but rather we will continue to be perplexed by the circumstances of our life. And so Jesus enters the conversation, showing his love and care for his disciples. And he continues in verse 20. He says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now what's Jesus saying? Now he's explaining a little bit more when he means that in a little while, you're not going to see me, but in a little while, you will see me. Jesus is saying he's going to die. And his death is going to cause his disciples great sorrow. The words grief and mourning are used, and those words are always associated with death. His disciples will have their heart ripped open when they see Jesus hanging on a cross dead, buried in a tomb. And the world, those who are opposed to Jesus, they'll be rejoicing. They will truly believe that they have triumphed. They have got rid of this guy who thinks he's the son of God. No longer do we have to worry about all the crazy things he's saying. The disciples will grieve and mourn. The world will rejoice. But then Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Why? Because they will see Jesus risen from the dead. And if you were to flip to John chapter 20, verse 20, verse 19, Jesus appears to the disciples. Where are they? They're hiding. They're afraid. They're worried that the Romans are going to blame them for stealing the body of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears before them, shows them his hand, shows them his feet. And it says the disciples were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. And to illustrate this, Jesus, and only Jesus can do this in a gathering of only men. I guess you could get away with saying it to men, but only Jesus could get away with talking about the pain of childbirth. And I'm not going to really go in length about the, the pain of childbirth. I've heard it's painful. And us guys know it's painful having our held hand during that process. But I understand it's more painful for the female. Point being, haha, that was a joke. <laughs> The point being the joy of childbirth is preceded by the pain of childbirth. And Jesus is saying, so will it be with the disciples. You will have great sorrow. You will grieve and mourn over my death. But there will be great joy when you see me risen from the dead. This week... I think it was this week or last week, I was mentioning to Allison as we plan this book we're writing on Child Care 101. And uh, we were talking about Matt and Tanya, who are our neighbors who've been coming to Auburn lately, and, and little Violet, who rips around the back foyer after the service is over. And, and when I was just saying to Allison, you know, with Violet, what really works well is the law of substitution. If, if she's upset about something, 
You just take that from her by offering her something else. You, you make an exchange. And uh, she quickly forgets about what was upsetting her. And she's quite happy with this new thing uh, or food or whatever it is that, that we give her. And I thought that's, that's kind of this law of substitution. Is, it's kind of how we probably at first glance understand what Jesus is talking about here. That their sorrow will be exchanged, be replaced with joy when they see Jesus raised from the dead. That the sorrow is going to be removed and Jesus is going to come up with something new and hand it to his disciples and, and they're going to experience joy. That's not what the text says. Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. That thing that brought you great sorrow is the very thing that is going to bring you great joy. The event that caused such great grief for you will be the event that causes great joy for you. And what's that event? It's the cross. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would gave, the death which gave him such grief will be the very event that gives them great joy when they see him risen from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Some of you might be questioning, Brent, why a week before Easter are you preaching on the resurrection of Jesus? It's Palm Sunday. And I could say, well, it just happens to be where we were in the text. But it's greater than that. The resurrection of Jesus, I love it, it's Don Carson, a, a scholar, um, and teacher who says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some discrete event. It's not an isolated event. It's not something that we just put on the shelf and then every Easter weekend, if you can make it, we, we talk about it and celebrate it. It changes everything. It ushers in so much the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we preach the resurrection. The apostle Paul said, forbid it that I boast about anything but the cross of Christ. And what did Paul do? He went from town to town, country to country, getting beaten up, thrown in prison. What? Preaching the good news of the cross, that Jesus Christ had died and that he had risen again. And what did Jesus choose to tell his disciples hours before he was going to be put to death? realizing the sorrow that they were going to experience, understanding how confused they really were. He comforted them with the good news that he's going to die and that he's going to rise again. It's the question that we might ask, and it's a question that uh, might come up next week. And on Sunday next week, Alex Klusterman, the pastor of the gathering, is preaching. So hopefully I'm not stealing a bunch of his material. But the question that we, we have to ask is, does it really matter that Jesus 
rose from the dead. Like, can't we just land on the fact that, that, that Jesus, he was a good man. He was a great leader. He left such a good example for people to follow. But that's not what Jesus said. He claimed to be much more. Jesus made a lot of claims and he hinged them on one thing. He hinged them on the fact that he would die, but in three days he would rise again. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is false, then all of Christianity collapses. But if it's true, it's the cornerstone of our faith. If it's false, then we're all deceived and you might as well just go now. But if it's true, there are some wonderful implications. There is huge relevance for all of us concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Big picture. What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? The first thing it means is that everything he said is true. What he said about himself is true. Many people have landed on on. on being okay with the fact that Jesus was a great teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was a a religious leader. But, But what did Jesus say about himself? He said that he was the son of God. He he said that he was equal with God. He said that he was God come in flesh. He is either who he said he was, as C.S. Lewis said, or he's a lunatic or a liar. You can't just be okay saying that Jesus was a great moral teacher and yet he lied through his teeth. Jesus claimed to be equal to, to be God come in the flesh. And in the first few verses of Romans chapter 1, it says that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection. So Jesus is who he said he was. And if Jesus is who he said he was, what's another implication? Jesus can do what he said he was going to do. We talked a little bit about this, or actually Dave Ramsey did in our video session this morning in our our stewardship class. Why did Jesus die? We can talk about our sin. We can talk about the Romans, those who put him on the cross, the Jewish leaders. Jesus died because he gave up his life. Earlier, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he yells out in in victory and in great triumph, it's finished. It says he laid down his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus gave up his life. and, And why did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, in those same earlier verses, Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. And I take my own life from me and and I can lift it back up. Jesus had the power to rise from the dead. And I don't know about you, if if Jesus said that he could die and rise again, and he did, I'm going to believe everything that he says he can do. Because I think that's pretty amazing. And when Jesus says, I can be the payment for sin, I will be your redeemer, I can grant eternal life, I'm going back, I'm going to prepare a home for you. When Jesus says all those things, I'm going to believe it. Because that's the implication of his resurrection. So he is who he said he was. He can do what he said he's going to do. And and what does it mean personally for me? And what does it mean personally for you? 
It means you can be saved. Our salvation is possible. Jesus says that I would that he was going to save people from their sins. And that his payment would would satisfy God's demand. And the stamp of approval of God that what Jesus said is true was that he would rise from the dead. And if Jesus' payment for our sin is not sufficient, or if God's not satisfied with what Jesus did for you and I, Jesus would be still in the tomb. But later on in in that letter to the Romans, Paul said that, that Jesus was put to death for our sin, but he raised or he was risen for our justification. God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. And Jesus rose from the dead so that those who put their faith in what he has done and in his person will be justified, will be declared innocent. And that means, secondly, that our sins can be forgiven. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sins can be forgiven. Regardless of what our past is, regardless of how many mistakes we've made, regardless of how reckless we've been, regardless of how many times we've said no, regardless of our disobedience, our sins can be forgiven. And another personal implication is this. We can be saved. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have purpose and meaning in life. Jesus says, I've come to give life and to give it abundantly. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, no longer is your identity in the world. Your identity is in Christ. And we're told that we're adopted into God's family and that we're made ambassadors and representatives. That we're given gifts. We have purpose and meaning in life. And then fourth, we can have hope. And we can embrace joy. I'm often reminded of the day in the waiting room when my dad first had his heart attack. And dad was laying in the bed and we had no idea. It looked like he was not going to make it through that day. Uh, And there was another family who had come in the hospital at the exact same time with their father having had a heart attack uh, in the room next to my dad's. And there was just my brother and my sister and I. And we grieved, we cried, we, we didn't want to see dad like that. Our greatest prayer is that dad would just walk out of the bed and walk out of the hospital and be fine. But we had a deep hope. And when the doctors talked to us about what they, they should and they shouldn't do if things got really bad, we said right to the doctor, we would love dad to survive. But this isn't it for my dad. My dad is home in heaven. I know he's quite eager to get there. And that's such a great hope. And I watched this other family. They were, they were besides themselves. Because beyond this earth, there was no hope for them. We have great hope. Because Jesus died and he rose again. And he has saved us. And because of that hope, we can embrace joy. We can have full confidence that God has things under control. That he has the details of our life in his hands. 
And that regardless of what happens, no matter what circumstance life throws at us, we have reason to praise God. Jesus uh, finishes the, the few verses I want to look at this morning. Let's just read them. I'll make a couple of comments. Verse 22, so with, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Nothing can take away our joy. Why? Because our, our joy, the source of our joy is Jesus Christ. The foundation of our joy is the death and resurrection of Jesus and nothing can change that. Nothing can change the work of grace that God does upon the life of a believer. Nothing can undo what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's an eternal joy. And knowing that and coming to grips with it and embracing it as our own is our joy. And then Jesus concludes by showing us how we can enter into a fullness of joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Last week, we talked a lot about abiding in Christ. And what Jesus is saying is, you want to experience a fullness of joy? Enter into this communion with my Father that I have made possible because of my death and because of my resurrection. Abiding in Christ, bearing fruit, the fruit of Christ-likeness. Ask my Father anything in my name, according to my will, and you will receive. And in this, your joy will be full. And I think in those couple of verses, uh, Jesus uh, summarizes everything he's been teaching in the chapter before, in chapter 15. And so all these things are true. That we can have a joy that no one can take away from us. And it's rooted in the the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so as I end, I have to ask the question. And I've I've brought a, if you're over 30, you'll, you'll know the friend that I brought with me to ask the question. Where's the joy? Is it up there? Where's the joy? Where's the joy? Now, where's the beef? Where's the joy? Where's the joy? If all these things are true, if all these implications are true, where's the joy? And for some of you, for some of you, the joy is not there because you haven't embraced Christ. And you're still hanging on to whatever it is of this world in your life, whether it's friendships, relationships, relationships, hobbies, pursuits, whatever it is that gives you meaning and purpose. You're hanging on to that, and we know that it's so fragile. But why are there so many followers of Jesus who are lacking joy or quite joyless? I guess because we're, we're looking for joy in all the wrong places. Last week we talked about Jesus as the vine and that we are a branch. And that we all connect ourselves to something. I think some of us have kind of cut our branch into two. And we kind of got part, a little part in Jesus and the rest in something else that we think is going to give us meaning and purpose and happiness as well. 
And when that crumbles and we just got this little peace in Jesus, we start to wonder, where's the joy? Or some of us are spending all of our time trying to do what Jesus has already done for us. We're, we're, we're trying to earn our way into heaven. We're trying to do things that will make us worthy. And we don't have to because it's already done. We can experience the fullness of joy by holding on and clinging tight to Jesus Christ. And Mike is going to come up and sing a fantastic song for us uh, that's going to speak about that and lead us uh, into the celebration of the table.